Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcc.com. Thank you, David. And good morning, church. Good to see all of you today. Well, we are doing a series through Genesis. After Easter, we are back in the book of Genesis. Um, if you don't have one yet, make sure you grab one of the study guides in the cafe and follow along with us each week. You'll be able to tell what text is coming up and read ahead if you'd like. Um, our story has brought us to chapter 24 of Genesis today. And this is where Abraham takes another step towards passing the torch of faith along to his son Isaac. So this story that we're looking at today is about one of the most important decisions that anybody could make in their life, and that is the decision of who you marry. So Genesis 1 and 2, if you recall from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 taught us that God invented marriage for a specific purpose, right? And that purpose was to fulfill the creation mandate, which is to fill the earth with worshipers. So this is vital to the teaching of the book of Genesis and to the rest of the Bible. God's purpose in creation was to fill the earth with worshiping people and God would dwell in their midst. That was the beginning uh, goal, the vision that, got, that we saw in Genesis 1. And so God's design comes about through marriages. God created marriage to be the, the uh, engine of, of fulfilling that. So we have children that are born, and they grow up, and they learn to know, love, and obey the Lord God through the context of a marriage family, a household. So as Adam and Eve, man and woman, as they would work together to fulfill that purpose, they're positioned to enjoy all the other blessings and, and, and joys that come along with marriage. So even though sin disrupted that plan, God's eternal purpose and created design for marriage, it still stands. It is to be the mechanism through which the earth is filled with people, and those people would be discipled to know Jesus. And God ultimately, through Christ, because of his sacrifice, we will dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So God dealt with that human sin problem, beginning with Abraham, which is where we are in the story, and he initiated a covenant of grace, but that ultimately led to Jesus Christ. And through his death and burial and resurrection, uh, we now are the bride of Christ, and he is the eternal groom. And so marriage is a picture of the gospel. Ephesians 5 tells us that. And so for us, through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we're adopted into his family, and God dwells with us. So as the church then, we are God's redeemed people. And if you recall, Matthew 28, Jesus gave us as the church, he gave us a job to do. You might know this from Matthew 28, right? It's called the Great Commission. The Great Commission is, go therefore and make disciples of every nation, right? That's the Great Commission. So now we have these two commands that run parallel in the Bible. We have the Genesis 1 command of the creation mandate, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion. That's the one command. Then the New Testament command that corresponds to it is the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. So both of them together are where they, they intersect. So they intersect in the home. The Christian home is where these two commands intersect. So husband and wife, they make little people together. 
they're fruitful and they multiply, and then they make disciples of those people as they raise up a godly household. And so the Christian home, we can rightly consider it a mission field where we have these, these children that need to know the, the Lord. And so in the Christian home, we have the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, and the Great Commission to make disciples, they intersect and they come together. And so your home is a mission field that plays out on a smaller scale. So for this reason, the person that you choose to marry is one of the most important decisions that you make. Because your spouse is not just a companion. Your spouse isn't just a romantic partner. Your spouse is a ministry partner. You and your spouse, your husband and your wife, you're going into ministry together. You're going into a mission together to raise up a godly household. So Genesis 24 is a great story about the purpose of marriage and about choosing a spouse, and it's full of practical wisdom. So we're going to go through this story, and we're going to, um, we're going to go straight through the story, but then at the end, I want to draw out six points of application and show how it relates to us now. So I think you'll find it helpful. Let's dig in. Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. We'll start here in verse 1. Now, this is a long story, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll skip around a little bit to, to get through this more quickly. Verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from, for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. All right, let's pause here for a second. So do you see what Abraham is doing? Based on all that we know from the book of Genesis so far, it should be pretty evident to us what Abraham is concerned about, what he's trying to do. He is protecting the integrity of the covenant for his son Isaac. Because Abraham, he's old, he's well advanced in years, he's not going to live forever. And so he's not going to be around and he needs to pass along the covenant to the next generation. And that's going to be his son Isaac. So he has two things that he asks his servant to do. The first thing he asks him to do is find a wife for Isaac who shares his faith. So find a believing wife. Find a wife for Isaac that shares his faith. And he was very intentional. He had a plan. Don't take a wife from the Canaanites. He was living in Canaan, so he's living in the midst of a pagan people. They were pagans, and they're under God's judgment. So Abraham was very intentional. Don't take a wife from among these unbelieving pagan Canaanite women. Because if Isaac married a Canaanite woman, then he would be yoking himself to pagan unbelief. 
you would have a mixed marriage, a believer and an unbeliever. And that threatens and jeopardizes the integrity of the covenant because the covenant needs to be passed down to build a household, be fruitful and multiply. That requires two people that agree that that is what they should be doing. The second thing that Abraham asked him to do is find Isaac a wife who will follow his lead. Find Isaac a wife who will follow his lead. So Abraham said, make sure she's willing to follow you back here. So go off to my family, find a wife for my son there, a believing wife, and then make sure you bring her back here. So God's covenant included a land promise, right? God was connected to this land, the land of Canaan. So he needed a wife that would join him there in that land that they were connected to. So these covenant responsibilities would pass from Abraham to Isaac. And then Isaac then is responsible for maintaining the covenant. And he's going to need a wife that believes, that shares the same belief in, in God, and is willing to follow him as he does, uh, or as he maintains the covenant, as they build this household together. And Abraham said, if she's unwilling to follow his lead, she's not the one. Move along. If she's not willing to follow his lead, then move along. She's not the one for Isaac. Okay, so let's keep going. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your, water, your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down, her, let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Okay, so the servant went off, where, just the way Abraham had told him. He went to find a wife for Isaac, and he prayed deliberately, and he, he devised this test of character. He wanted to see what kind of woman will it be that, that comes out to meet him, and what, what is she like. So he was looking for a woman who would go the extra mile, Right? A woman who showed kindness and hospitality to a stranger and to his camels. So, I mean, do you know how much a camel can drink? Camels can drink a lot. Um, you know, I, I Googled this this week just to find out. And, uh, like, one website said 53 gallons. Another one said 25 gallons. Regardless, let's say, let's take the low number. Let's say it's 25 gallons a thirsty camel can drink. You multiply that by 10. So she's giving water 250 gallons, let's say, on the conservative side, to 
to, to give something to drink for these 10 camels. 250 gallons, and he's kicking back and watching her, seeing what she's going to do. And so she gives him a drink, and then she, she draws water for all these camels. I mean, she's, she's working very hard to serve him. So it was, a, it was a very tall task that he was looking for, and she did it. So without hesitation, she did it, and then let's see what happened. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Okay, so she continued to impress Abraham's servant by her display of generous hospitality. She said, yeah, you can come and stay at my place. We've got a place for you. We've got a place for your camels. Come and stay at our house. And so as the story continues, we won't read all this part, but as the story continues, they, the servant uh, entered the home. He met all of the family, and he communicated to the family the marriage proposal that he was sent to deliver. Now, uh, of course, in the ancient culture, two marriages or a marriage would join two different families, right? So the whole family would give input into the relationship. And so you had the mom and the brother and the dad and uh, everybody, they're kind, of, they're kind of weighing in. And she's, you know, the servant is speaking to um, Laban, whom we'll get to know soon enough, and, uh, and her father. So there's, this, there's a lot of input from the family in this relationship. But as the head of the family, the bride's father always gave consent to the marriage. And in this case, we also see that the daughter had the right to refuse. So it wasn't like she was being traded like property. I mean, she... She could say, no, I don't want to marry this guy. So let's skip down to verse 42. Verse 42. So he's now finishing the story uh, of his whole journey there, and this is the end of his story. He said, I came, to today, or came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw water for your camels also? Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. She went down into the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban, who was her brother, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. 
And the servant brought out jewelry of gold or of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the woman, young, young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. All right, let's pause there. So Rebekah consented to the marriage even, and was even willing to leave immediately with the servant. So she was willing to pack it all up and, and leave pretty much right away. So now watch this. I want, you to, I want you to pay attention to verse 60. So watch what happens next and as they, as they send her away. So verse 59 so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Now listen to this. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Why is that important? There's a, well, uh, remember from earlier that why God invented marriage. God invented marriage to fulfill the creation mandate, right? Marriage was the vehicle through which the earth would be filled with people, presumably that would be worshipers of God and he would dwell in their midst. That was God's intent in, verse, or in chapter 1. So let's just read that. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. So, fruitful, like have, have lots of children, fill the earth with people, and then exercise dominion over it, subdue it. So, verse 60, let's look at that again. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Can you hear the echo of Genesis 1 here? in Genesis 24, verse 60. May you become thousands of ten thousands. May you possess the gate. May you rule. May you have dominion. This is a, this is a, it's an echo of the creation mandate. So Isaac is like a new Adam. The covenant is being passed on to Isaac. He's like a new Adam. He's now responsible for this covenant of fulfilling this calling. And Rebekah is like a new Eve. And she is the one that will help him fulfill this, this calling. So Rebecca and her family, they all recognize the simple fact that God's mission was the foundation for their marriage. Marriage was, was to fill the earth and subdue it, fill it with worshipers, and uh, God would dwell in their midst. All right, let's keep going. Verse 61. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. 
So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So Isaac and Rebekah, they meet. Shortly thereafter, they get married. There's no romantic dates, no candlelight dinners. They just, they meet, and they're married seemingly immediately. So she married him out of a higher purpose than romance. She married him because she shared the same mission. She wanted to, uh, the family, they knew. It's like this was, this was the purpose of marriage. And so she married him without all the, the, the romance. The romance came. I mean, the, the romance happened later, but the marriage was, was driven by the mission, right? So she married him for the mission of building a household. And in verse 67, it says, she became his wife and he loved her. So the, the romantic part, the romantic love, that was the fruit of the marriage. That was not the cause of the marriage. It's not like they fell in love romantically and then got married. No, it's like they got married and then the love was the fruit of the marriage. So Abraham's strategy was successful. Isaac and Rebekah, both believers. They were both submitted to the purpose of marriage. Isaac was responsible for the stewardship of the covenant to establish and leave a godly legacy. Rebekah was responsible for helping and working with Isaac as they both obeyed God's mission for marriage together. Now, even though the context of this story is very remote from ours, I mean, it's distant ancient times, right? The text does still apply to us and to modern marriages because the commands of God are eternal. The context is different, but the commands are eternal. So I've got six points of application, and uh, I want to go through these. And now, as I go through these, I just, I just want to say this on the outset. You know that I can't address every situation, every nuance. I mean, like, in, in a modern world especially, there's all different kinds of relational circumstances we find ourselves in. Um, so I'm, this is not a marriage seminar, and we're not going to cover all the bases. I want to kind of narrow our scope to the things that are evident here in the text and talk about particularly what, what it, like a good, healthy, biblical process for finding a spouse. So recognize I'm painting with a broad brush here. These are general principles. It's not meant to be exhaustive. Okay? Okay, here's the first point. Number one, prayerfully commit to God your desire for marriage. Prayerfully commit to God your desire for marriage. So listen, it is a good thing. It is good to desire marriage and children. That's a good desire. And if that's a desire that you have, praise God, that's a, God, that's a godly, holy desire. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. So in our church, we've got a lot of singles. And a lot of the singles, you very much want to be married. You want to have children. And that's good. And you can be prayerfully proactive. Just like Abraham was in his servant. So trusting God for a spouse doesn't mean you have to be passive. You can be prayerfully proactive. So I mean, simply put, um, fellas, ask these ladies out on dates. Take them out. Take them out on a date. I mean, it's, uh, you know, write it down, put it in your notes, you know, highlight it in Genesis 24. Um, find a single woman and take her out on a date. Can you do that? Um, ladies, go. <laughs> even if, if, even if um, you're thinking, I guess probably, probably not the right guy. I mean, still, like, give the guy a chance. Like, go on a date. If, if, if at the very least, encourage your brother in Christ by uh, 
showing a receptivity to uh, the invitation to a date. I met Laura on a summer project with crew um, back in 19, I ain't telling you, but it was a while back. <laughs> and so one of the things I remember about this summer project is what all the super spiritual people were saying. Super spiritual people were like, I'm not here to find a wife. I did not come here to find a husband. I'm here for the Lord and for the calling. That was not my approach. Um, I had a plan and I worked the odds. I'm thinking like, what better place to find a wife than on a Christian mission trip where we're sharing the gospel all summer? I'm like, that sounds like a pretty good place to be on the lookout. So, um, so I, worked the, I worked this plan. There were 50 or 60 roughly uh, college kids on this trip. First half of the summer, watch and observe. Just kind of look, take, take a look at... Uh, Take a look at the landscape here and narrow down the, the field to three or so. Um, <laughs> second half of the summer, move in for the strike. <laughs> so I got a couple of buddies of mine and uh, we did a, what you call a creative date where an equal number of guys will take out an equal number of girls, but nobody's really committed to anybody, but it's a creative date. You just go out and you do something fun. So I recruited a couple of my guys, and um, I'm like, hey, I'll, I'm interested in these girls. Come, come with me. Let's do a creative date with them. So we went out with these three girls, and I mean, clearly Laura outclassed them all. Uh, so, but she did have a boyfriend uh, at the time, so that's a story for a, another sermon. But, well, I'll just give you the short version. To use a sports analogy, let's just say there was a turnover, um, or... Change of possession. So that's, uh, you know, interestingly, of all the super spiritual people, a lot of them did end up dating that summer. But we were the only marriage that came out of it. Um, so be, take that for what it's worth. I do want to say one other thing to, um, to those of you who are single. And I just want to acknowledge uh, in, in this modern climate, it's, it's, it's not an easy time to be a Christian single man or woman um, because it's, we don't, there, there just, there are fewer, fewer people that are professing Christ, fewer people that are growing, fewer people that are committed to churches. It is, it is a shrinking field, um, and that's a challenge. And so for a lot of you, being single is you have a good desire, and it's a trial to have a good holy desire and for that desire to go unfulfilled. So I just say, as, as a word of encouragement to you, that God sees that desire, and God is honored in the desire, and he knows what he's doing. So don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Don't despair. It's not as though you were the only Christian single that is, you know, interested in getting married. There are others out there, but it just, the circumstances being what they are, um, we just may have to be more intentional. So trust the Lord. Don't give up hope, and trust God to provide. And I would also just say, like, find an honest and mature Christian friend and just ask them for any input they might have. Like, do you have any suggestions? Um, like, just how can I be appropriately proactive? Because it's not bad to be proactive. Okay, that's the first one. Second point, only date other committed Christians. Only date other committed Christians. Let me say this as bluntly as I can. Do not even consider a single date with somebody who's not a Christian. If they're not a Christian, they are not the one for you. And even if you're thinking a missionary dating situation, don't, don't even go there. Like it just, 
yeah, you might know the one person that it worked out for and the person became a Christian, but those are rare. You don't want those odds. Romance is a powerful drug, and if you kind of give your heart to somebody romantically, you'll, it, you, romance can lead you to do stupid things. And so it's a, like, don't even put yourself in a position to where you're tempted to give your heart to somebody. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Meaning that light cannot have any romantic fellowship with darkness. Don't date a non-believer. And remember this. It's like marriage is not just about companionship. Marriage is about a mission. It's a mission to raise up a godly seed. So if the husband and wife, if you do get married and you go out with one of you as a non-believer, then you're not on the same page spiritually. And then what sort of legacy are you going to be able to leave to your children? You'll have a, a, a divided house, you have a mixed marriage, and you're not going to be able to, you're not going to, be able to work together in the, at the mission of what marriage was created to be. And if you're currently dating somebody who's not a Christian, I love you, break up. Break up. And I know that... That may be the hardest thing you, you hear, but I promise you, it's better to feel the pain now than feel the pain years from now, whenever you're, you're in too deep and you're in a, a very difficult situation. Number three, look for a Christian man or woman who is growing in personal holiness. Look for a Christian man or woman who's growing in personal holiness. So this is the fruit of their character. So remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, you recognize a tree by its fruit. So the last point was make sure they're a Christian. And I would say one step further, make sure they're a growing Christian. Make sure that their, their trajectory is toward Christ and not kind of apathy or lingering on the fringes of Christianity. It's like make sure they're a committed follower of Jesus. So we're obviously not looking for perfection, but we are looking for fruit. So here's some things that you can ask yourself. Does he or she have a repentant heart? Ask, what does she value? What does he spend his money on? How does she speak of and to other people? Is he humble? Does she show respect? Where does she go to church? Is she modest in her appearance and attitude? Is he strong in his convictions and commitments? Ask these sort of questions to, to find out what are they made of. By the way, if you don't go to the same church, then pay very close attention to the church they go to and ask around because we're shaped by our community, right? I mean, we're shaped by the teaching we're under and the, the people that are, we're in fellowship with. Our church communities shape us. And so there are, there are some... You might date somebody that attends a church that we would never recommend somebody going to. So that's, that's something you want to you take into consideration. And if you want input, well, I'll get to that in a second, about asking for input. But if find out about the church and just ask yourself, like, is that a church that you yourself would join? I mean, there, there are some churches in town that are like-minded, and there's a lot of traffic you know, between, between our churches, especially I hear like somebody from another church that like Missio Day or something, somebody's dating somebody from Missio Day, and I'm like, well, it's 50-50, <laughs> it's a jump ball, let's see who wins that one, um, but it's, it's, like, it's a like-minded church, we love them at Missio Day, um, but there are other churches that we may not have that same opinion about, so pay close attention to where they go to church, and does that church 
explicitly teach from the Bible is that church anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, number four. If possible, get input from a spiritual authority about your relationship before you get engaged. Get input from a spiritual authority before you get engaged. Like Rebecca's family, they were all involved in the relationship. Abraham and his servant, he was like, here's the criteria. I want you to do this. And so it's like it, there were people involved. It was, a, it was a community effort. And we are much more individualistic nowadays. And this is an afterthought, if even that. So we don't invite people to speak into our dating lives. And I think it's a missed opportunity for us to really gain some wisdom from other people who may see things that we don't see. Proverbs 11.4 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So let me just tell you about a resource. Um, pastors here at Christ the King, we do uh, not only premarital counseling, but we do pre-engagement counseling. Many of you know this. Many of you have done this. Um, it's, a, it's something that is, I would, I would do... I would much rather do the pre-engagement counseling because that's when you really have an opportunity to speak into a relationship before it's set in concrete. Once, once a couple's engaged, I mean, it's, you got to get a jackhammer if there's a big problem because they're, they're kind of, they're knit together already in their hearts. Um, and if there's an issue, then it can be, you can talk through those things early on and help kind of steer the, the direction of the relationship. So... We love doing that. Pre-engagement, pre-marital, it's like we're happy to do all of those things, but pre, pre-engagement is, is really important. Now, of course, you lose the, the fun of popping the question and the big surprise and, uh, you know, putting it on Instagram and, or whatever, at the stadium, whatever you're doing. It's like you lose that. Uh, I mean, you could, I guess you could still make a deal with her. I'm like, hey, I'm going to ask you to marry me here, so act surprised because the cameras will be on or something. You can do that. But, but still, it's like you'll lose the element of surprise, but it's worth it to get the input early on in the relationship. Um, if you want to, we have a formal, or a kind of a process, go to our website, ctkcincy.com slash weddings, slash weddings, and um, there's, a, there's a button there that says pre-marital, but just click that button, and there's, on that form, there's a thing for pre-engagement too. Number five, let the mission of the marriage, or let the mission of marriage drive the relationship. So all the other factors in marriage, the important factors, these, those are important factors, but let the mission of marriage drive the relationship. So remember this, like we've said this a few times already, God invented marriage as the vehicle for filling the earth with worshipers. And so marriage is, marriage is all about, about the, the household that you're building together. Now, in modern times, we kind of reduce it to the romantic part. Like, it's all about the love and the affection. Are we compatible? Do we like the same movies and the same music or whatnot? It's like, we kind of reduce it to that. But biblically speaking, there is a deeper calling that is a part of marriage that we submit to when we get married. So marriage, God invented it as the vehicle for filling the earth with worshipers. Let me just read this text one more time. This is a classic marriage text. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So whenever you get married, you're not only taking on, you know, uh, combining your bank accounts and moving in together. When you get married, you are submitting to a high calling that God created marriage for. And that is to build up a household, to pass along a, a godly legacy. 
So the husband and wife, you guys are ministry partners, right? You're working together to raise up this household. And that calling to build up a household is have some kids, make disciples of those kids. Teach them about Jesus. That's the calling. That's the mission of your marriage. And so whenever a husband and wife are on the same page, you have a unified purpose, and that's a healthy foundation for marriage. So practically, think about how your marriage and your job and discipling your children. Think about how those three things are going to intersect because they they need to fit together. So uh, women in particular, don't let the mother factor take you by surprise. You want to anticipate it. Even now, as you're preparing for marriage, anticipate the mother factor because childbearing is a high and glorious honor, and that's part of the mission of marriage, right? So when you're preparing for marriage, you want to take into account how your life is going to change when you've got kids. Because you've got children, then that's an, that's an additional responsibility that has to be accounted for somehow. And now, men, you don't want to let the father factor catch you by surprise either. So some guys, they may abandon their homes whenever they have children. And they're thinking, well, I'm a provider, you know, so I'm going to work, you know, insane hours because I'm providing. It's like, well, you need to provide more than just money. You provide with your presence. You provide with, with the way that you are present to discipline and to instruct and to, um, you know, shape the, the hearts of these, these little children. So your career isn't your mission, neither in life or in your marriage. Your career serves your mission. Your career funds your mission. But your career is not your mission in life. Your, your mission is, is to, uh, to build up a godly household. Like that's the mission of marriage, okay? Number six, men take the lead in the relationship and women follow his lead. So speaking of uh, husband and wife. So husbands take the lead in the relationship, wife follow his lead. Now, this is how God designed it. In the Bible, this is pretty straightforward. Um, so I'm not going to make the case for it now biblically. We've preached that other times in previous sermons. So I want to assume that, uh, assume that and, and build something on it. Because our culture does not agree with this. And, you know, also a lot of Christians and churches and Christian leaders, they don't agree with this either. And there's a lot of debate about it. But, it, it, I mean, it is straightforward in the Bible. So this is a great opportunity to be countercultural and to subversively display the beauty of God's design. Because God's design is glorious. It's beautiful. So here's the thing. Like, I think many Christian men naturally want to lead. And many Christian women naturally want to follow their husband's lead. But since most of us have never heard it taught, and most of us have never seen it modeled, we don't know how to do it. And so we do it in, in clumsy, harmful ways, or we, we try to do the opposite, thinking that that's better. And we just, we don't know how to do it. And that's, and so, and then we read our experience back into the Bible and think, well, this can't be what the Bible teaches because I've never seen it done well. It's like, no, we can be subversive. We can be countercultural. And if, you know, if, if, if the world and other Christians aren't, aren't on board with it, that's, that's their business. But we can, we can do this well and learn how to do it. So women, like, just ask yourself, would you want a man who doesn't lead. Would you, so I'll say it this way, would you want an indecisive man? Do you want a man who's always deferring to you, who is always looking to you to lead and provide direction for the relationship? Is that what you want? 
Probably not because that's a weak man. And I don't know very many women that want to be married to weak men. Women want strong men. It's, it's natural for a woman to look for and to marry a man that is stronger than her. And so she might say, I don't, I'm an empowered woman. I don't want to follow a man's lead. You know, she might say that. But if there's a man that actually did that, that let her take the lead, then that would be a, that would be a man who's going to defer to her and she's going to have to, the, the weight of the relationship is going to fall back on her. So I think women want men that are stronger than them because that's, that's where the man's protection comes from. A, a, a woman would feel safer in a relationship where a man loves her and is willing to use his strength to protect his, his wife, his family. So even if a woman would bristle at the notion of male headship, a lot of times they don't want the responsibility either. And it becomes a semantic thing. It becomes a verbal argument when at the ground level and the way that we actually live our lives, this is the naturally the way things often will shake out. So I say these things to encourage you. I, I say this to encourage you because the, the feminists are selling a certain product that women, you are much better off whenever you're in charge and you don't need no man. But I'm just saying that that's, that's not the way God has designed the woman. That's not the way God has designed the marriage relationship. And it's not, it doesn't make you happier either. So early in the dating relationship, you can get this commitment out into the open, even if you don't know practically how to do it. You can learn how to do it. I mean, isn't that the way it is with all, all of our Christian convictions? I mean, we might say early on as a Christian, it's like, I'm committed to the Bible, and I have no idea what it's about. You can work with that, because you've got, you're starting off with a good conviction, a good core commitment, and then that core commitment can be applied through life as you, as you learn and grow. So I think this is, this is the way you can do it. So men, early in the relationship, you can tell her, I believe I'm accountable to God to lead my future wife well, and I'm committed to learn how to do it. And women, you can tell him, I believe God calls me to follow my future husband's lead and join the mission God has called him to. If you get those commitments out on the table, even, even if you don't know how it works out practically, you can... You can build on that, and you can work your way through it. So let me tell you how this worked out in my own life and marriage. Because it's, it's been a process of growth for, for me and for Laura. So whenever we were newly married, I, I had that conviction. I had the belief, at least, that I was supposed to take the lead, but I didn't know how to do it. It was, it was a foreign idea to me, practically, what should I do? How do I go about it? So I, even though I saw it clearly in Scripture, I was afraid of the responsibility. And really, I was afraid that I would do it wrong and that I would, I would do harm by leading poorly. And so I'd, I just kind of defaulted to be more passive. I didn't want to assert anything because if, when you assert something, you're leading. Now, all of a sudden, somebody is following you, and now you're responsible for, the, for yourself and the person that's following you. And so I just thought, well, being more passive, that's, that's a safer approach. And so that's what I did a lot of times. And so I had to clumsily figure this out. There was a lot of trial and error. And there was a lot of bad habits that I needed to unlearn. You know, some guys, they can be harsh and domineering. And they need to, that's, they need to unlearn that. They need to learn how to lead gently, lead well, lead lovingly and tenderly. But, uh, you know, that, that was never my problem. My problem was the opposite. 
And I think like, maybe some of you guys can relate to this. Your problem is not that you're this mean, authoritarian, domineering, overbearing guy that's just harsh. It's like your problem is you're just too passive. That was my problem. I was too passive. I, I wanted to please her, and if I got it wrong, I was afraid of upsetting her. So now I was wrong, and she's crying. <laughs> That's not a fun place to be. And so I was too insecure to lead. And I thought, well, I, if, I, if I don't make any decisions at all, then, I don't, then I'll never make a decision she doesn't like. And so what that meant was that we were a ship without, without you know, any steering. There was, there was nobody at the wheel. We were just kind of, we, d- we didn't have the, the sort of leadership that our relationship needed. So eventually what I learned is that Laura would be happier and more fulfilled if she had a clear direction to follow. And that my calling, my responsibility to God was to provide that. Say, here's where we're going. Here, let's, let's do this. And so, um, for her part, Laura learned to trust God through my leadership and to follow me through risky decisions, big decisions, follow me into, you know, the, the things that we're doing now. So over time, a couple of things happened. I mean, it's like I learned to lead more confidently, and Laura also learned to follow me more joyfully. So now it's been 21 years. We're married in 99. It'll be, uh, be 22 years this summer. Yeah, it's, it's 21 years. But we've learned how to move with, with the grain of our design. We're not, we're not kind of swimming upstream against our design, to mix the metaphor. <laughs> we're kind of moving with the grain of our design. And what's, what's been delightful is, is Laura would tell you this. And I asked her earlier this week just to make sure that the thing I'm about to tell you is what she would actually say. <laughs> <laughs> Laura would tell you that my headship over her in our marriage is freedom for her. And that it's not a burden, it's a delight. And because of that, she is free from the, because she's free from the responsibility of leading our household, she is also free to flourish as the woman God made her to be. Okay. That's all of my application points. Let me just say a word and we'll close. I know whenever we talk about marriage like this, I'm, I realize I'm talking to people that are all over the map, right? I mean, we're, we're all in different life stages, and we've been narrowly focused in on, you know, a a season of life, of looking for a spouse, because that's what the text is about. But I, I recognize that there's a lot of people that are single, but many that are married, and some that are divorced, and some that are widowed, all different sorts of circumstances. And so in all these different circumstances, we need the grace of God to meet us where we are, right? So for a lot of us, we're, we're having, you know, if you're older, if you're married and you've been, you've been around the block a time or two, you're now living with choices that you made years ago. And if you could go back and do it differently, you would. And whenever somebody talks about things that you ought to do in those times, you realize, oh, I didn't do it that way. And then it could be frustrating or could lead to regret or something, something like that. I was telling Laura earlier this week that, you know, as a dad, there are a lot of things that I'd, I would love to be able to do differently. If I could go back and do things differently, I would. Because I've learned things since then, but I don't I can't take my current experience and apply it 10 years ago or whatever. So, I mean, we all, we all do this. Hindsight's 2020. We don't get mulligans in life, but we do get the abundant grace of Jesus, and we can put our hope in that. So regarding marriage and kids, your life may not be anywhere near what we've talked about today. 
So no matter where you are in life, remember, God makes straight lines from crooked sticks. He's merciful. God will meet you where you are right now and can lead you to whatever the next step should be or can be based on your current circumstances. His grace is greater. So wherever you are now, that's, that's where you are. That's your starting point. And no, you may not be able to go back and redo the last 10, 15, however many years of your life. You can't do that. But you can start where you are now because God finds us and meets us where we are. And that can be the starting point for his grace to apply into whatever's next. While we still may be living with the ramifications of decisions that we did make years ago. So, wherever you are, give your dating life to Christ. Give your marriage to Christ. Give your children to Christ. Give your future to Christ. Your past to Christ. Give your hopes to Christ. Give your regrets to Christ. He can handle them all. Lay them at the foot of the cross. Ask Jesus to redeem it. Because he will make all things beautiful in his time. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you for the, the gift and the beauty of marriage. And so many things that we could say. I mean, marriage is a, a picture of the gospel, of course. But also is practically the, the means through which um, you accomplish your purposes in the world. The people that we are called to reach and serve and love and evangelize are people that were born. And the best place for people to be born is within the context of a loving, godly home. Even though many of us have not had that experience, um, that is your design. And so God, I pray that um, you will work in our congregation, um, whatever it is, that wh whatever the next steps are. From where we are now, I pray that you will show us what our next steps are. I pray, Lord, in particular for those that are single and are, they desire marriage, they desire a good thing. Um, Lord, we, just, we, we ask you that you will fulfill their desires. Pray that they will meet someone um, that will be a godly husband or wife, that they can join your mission and start a new household together. And so, Father, I pray that you will also work grace through our church body um, for those of us at all different other stages of, of life. And I pray, Lord, that they will hear this message today with, with the grace in which it was intended, and that is the grace that covers us in all of our failures and weaknesses. And so may we be reminded of that. Thank you, Jesus, that you work your grace through every situation. We thank you, God. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please stand. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.